Hello, and welcome to Cinema Sunday. I am your host, Candy Thomas, and each week I'm going to watch one of the 95 movies that have won an Oscar for Best Picture and tell you exactly what I think of them. Before I begin, let's do a little bit of a current events update. Just wanting to preserve for future listeners some memory of what was happening at the time I recorded this episode. The second Republican primary debate took place earlier this week. If you were hoping to hear that I watched it and have some earth-shattering policy information to share with you, keep dreaming. What I did learn is that Tim Scott has convinced some lovely woman to pretend to be his girlfriend. Nikki Haley referred to Vivek as scum. They all still have a hard-on for banning TikTok. And Ron DeSantis 100% has some sort of funky-ass little lifts inside those boots. Oh, and Donald Trump refused to show up. Instead, he held his own rally across the street. Just a gentle reminder that one of these people will be the next Republican nominee for President of the United States, and we should all find that absolutely horrifying. Ivanka Trump testified in the $250 million New York fraud case against her father this week. She spent most of her time testifying that she didn't have access to her father's personal financial statements. Donald Trump's attorneys are trying to insist there are disclaimers that go along with all of Trump's personal financial statements, and that everyone involved, from the bankers to the tax preparers, should never have believed him when he quoted specific values for his properties. He believes they should have done due diligence and not believed what he submitted. An expert witness testified that banks lost more than $168 million in potential interest on loans related to four of Trump's properties due to the blatant misrepresentation of the property values. It appears that the Screen Actors Guild and American Federation of Television and Radio Artists Union has reached a tentative agreement with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. The new union contract will include wage increases, protections from AI, streaming revenue, hair and makeup representation, and an intimacy coordinator on all sets. I believe the final vote is Tuesday, but for all intents and purposes, the actors are back on the job. This week, we also have a couple of angry little mountains. It appears that Mount St. Helens is starting to rumble again. More than 400 earthquakes have been detected beneath the surface in recent months. The last time Mount St. Helens erupted was 1980 and left 57 people dead. There is also a mountain in Grindavik, Iceland, that has been showing increased seismic activity, leading officials there to issue warnings of potential volcanic eruption. A state of emergency has been declared in the region, and authorities have risen the aviation alert to orange. They have evacuated a nearby town of 3,400 people, and this town is located about 31 miles away from the capital city of Reykjavik. If you recall, there was a major eruption in Iceland in 2010 that caused widespread disruption to air travel between Europe and North America, causing more than 100,000 flights to be canceled and costing the airlines nearly $3 billion. Let's hope the folks in both of those areas are able to stay safe. And finally, the good people of Ohio showed up at the polls this week and did something that their Republican-led state government never thought they would do. They voted to enshrine a woman's right to choose into their state constitution and, 
and I mean, this is a very big and, they voted to legalize weed. The celebrations have been short-lived, however, because the party in power has already said they don't much care for the will of the voter and are seeking to find ways to block both laws from being enacted. I remember a time when there would be a ballot measure and citizens would vote on it, and if it passed, the laws would be enacted accordingly. But in the age of the big lie, election deniers, and a ruthless attempt to maintain a fragile grip on power no matter what, we get the privilege of watching these fucking nutbags attempt to override democracy at every single turn. I want to say one thing to the people of Ohio. You have a small group of people at your state capitol who are defying your will as a voter. They are taking away your voice as an American citizen. You need to vote them out. And if you can't for some reason, because I understand there are areas that are heavily gerrymandered, then you need to put on your shoes. You need to go peacefully protest in the streets in front of your capital and in front of their homes, in front of their churches, their grocery stores, every restaurant they ever dine at, even the place where they wash their goddamn cars. These men, and I promise you they are mostly men, will learn that every day they continue to derail democracy is another day they will have no peace. None. Okay, let's shift gears now and do a movie review. I follow the same template every week, so if you are new to this podcast, here's how it works. I'm going to tell you the basic details of the movie, things like who's in it and what's it about, and of course where you can stream it if you want to watch it. I also answer these three questions. Does it stand the test of time? Is it Oscar-worthy? And should you watch it? Or is today the day you put up your Christmas decorations several weeks too early, like everyone in my neighborhood has done? Just a friendly warning, I like to give my honest assessment of these movies, and I sometimes go off on tangents about current events. I like to rant about the things that irritate me, and I always seem to mix it with a heaping dose of adult language. I also need to mention that this particular episode contains discussions of suicide and self-harm, so please be sure you listen with caution. Before we begin, I'd like to thank Wikipedia and IMDb, as they are great sources of information for all things movie and Oscar-related. So with that, let's take it away. This week's Oscar-winning film is The Apartment. It was released June 21st of 1960. It's directed by Billy Wilder. It stars Jack Lemmon, Shirley MacLaine, and Fred McMurray. It was nominated for a total of 10 Oscars, and it won five of them. It won for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, Best Art Direction, and Best Film Editing. If you want to watch it, you can stream it on Spectrum or MGM Plus for free if you have subscriptions. Otherwise, you can pay $3.99 to watch it on Amazon Prime Video, Vudu, Redbox, and Apple TV. So what is it about? The story revolves around a man named C.C. Baxter. He's played by Jack Lemmon. Baxter is a low-level office worker at a large insurance company headquartered in New York City. He wants desperately to climb the corporate ladder. So at least in the beginning, it appears that he's lucked into the ultimate quid pro quo. 
Baxter agrees to loan his Upper West Side apartment to a few of the high-ranking executives at his company so they can have a clean, quiet, and convenient place to carry on their extramarital affairs. I think it starts out easy enough. Baxter spends a couple of nights each week working late so his apartment can be used in his absence. The adulterous couple simply leaves the key under the mat when they're done. Baxter is required to maintain a pretty meticulous schedule, so there's no overlap because each man has a very specific availability based on whichever woman he plans to entertain that week. The upside to all of this is that the four men are all promising to mention Baxter's name to the head of personnel. With all of them attesting to Baxter's amazing work performance, he'll be promoted in no time. The downside is that the four men all have overactive libidos, and they need the apartment so often that Baxter can never seem to get an evening in his own home. There's also the issue of his neighbors and landlord, who were bombarded every night with the sounds of loud music and rowdy sex coming from Baxter's apartment. They all politely refer to him as a swinging bachelor, but they can't help but think he's a bit of a pig. And since Baxter's trying desperately to keep the secrets of his married supervisors, he has no choice but to allow his neighbors to think he's the king of tits and wine. We're only a few minutes into the movie, and we can see how untenable this is becoming for Baxter. He's often forced to spend most of the night outside in the cold weather. They consume all of his food and alcohol, and their drunken escapades often leave his apartment in disarray. This has apparently been going on for more than a year, and he still has nothing to show for it. But any time he tries to deny one of the men access, or heaven forbid he's sick and just wants to sleep in his own bed, they threaten his job. He's gotten himself into a situation where he has to play along, or he jeopardizes his career. Baxter finally receives enough glowing performance reviews that he manages to catch the attention of Jeff Sheldrake, the personnel director. He's played by Fred McMurray. At long last, Baxter is summoned to the 27th floor to meet with Sheldrake in person, and he's sure his ship has finally come in. In an earlier scene, we met Fran Kubelik, a young woman who operates the elevator in Baxter's office building. Fran is played by Shirley MacLaine. The earlier scene introduced us to Fran and allowed us to see that several men, including Baxter, would be interested in dating her. Now we're seeing her again, and it's just the two of them chatting in her elevator as Baxter makes his way up to Sheldrake's office. They flirt with each other, but Baxter doesn't get the sense that she'd be willing to go out with a guy like him. His meeting with Sheldrake doesn't go exactly as planned. First, Sheldrake reveals he knows about the apartment and the arrangement Baxter has with a few members of the management team. This is tawdry behavior, and Sheldrake expects more from Baxter, who immediately agrees that he will never loan his apartment to anyone again. Except, it turns out that Sheldrake wants the use of the apartment for himself, and he expects Baxter to cut off usage to anyone else and keep it 100% secret why he's doing so. In fact, he even insists that Baxter provide him with his own key, so Sheldrake doesn't have to risk anyone seeing them passing one around at work. Although it doesn't give him back his apartment, at least he's gone from sharing with four men to just one. And the best part is that Sheldrake has the power to promote him, so he'll end up getting the long-awaited corner office. 
Sheldrake wants the agreement to start that very night. He has told his wife he needs to spend the evening with a client, but really, he has a date, and he wants to take the woman to Baxter's apartment. To apologize to Baxter for the short notice, he offers him two tickets for that night's performance of The Music Man. In all honesty, Baxter doesn't appear to be the slightest bit bothered by this crazy turn of events. In fact, he's on cloud nine. He finally got his promotion. He knows he no longer has to kowtow to those four assholes who abused his kindness. He'll have more money, more prestige, and more confidence when it comes to his own dating life. He leaves Sheldrake's office with a little extra pep in his step. He invites Fran to be his date to the theater that evening, and she accepts. But first, she has to keep her commitment to meet a former flame who's been calling her again. She's just trying to be polite to him and tells Baxter she'll meet him in front of the theater before the show starts. Fran does go into this very well-intentioned. Her plan is to meet her ex for a drink. They both can get some closure, and then she'll go have a pleasant first date with Baxter. Seems like a good plan. But it goes off the rails, and Baxter is left standing alone at the theater without a date. What he doesn't know is that the person Fran is meeting is his boss, Jeff Sheldrake. And Sheldrake makes a big pitch to Fran. He's going to do it. He's finally going to leave his wife. He's in love with Fran, and he can't be without her. Blah, blah, blah. We've all seen this scene a million times. And as a woman watching this, it's all I can do not to yell at my TV, don't you fall for it, girl. He's lying to you. He's never going to leave his wife. And Fran, to her credit, is a tiny bit skeptical. She's not jumping right back in, but he's really convincing. He's a smooth talker who says all the right things. And before you know it, he's talked her into a trip to Baxter's apartment. They don't realize on their way out of the restaurant that they have been spotted by someone from work. It's Sheldrake's secretary. She heard him tell his wife that he was entertaining a client that evening and would be home late. And now she knows the client is actually the elevator girl he's having a fling with. Put a pin in this because it's important for later. What we have here is a typical romantic comedy love triangle mix-up. Fran is at Baxter's apartment, not knowing whose home she's in. Baxter is in front of the theater, not realizing Fran is the woman Sheldrake was bringing to his apartment, and Sheldrake has no idea that Fran was supposed to ditch him and go meet Baxter. And it's cute the way they've set this all up for us, but it's about to take a serious turn. It all starts to unravel at the company Christmas party. This is not something Fran would normally be invited to, but Baxter has some workplace clout now and he feels confident he can invite whoever he wants to. And he likes Fran's company. He has forgiven her for standing him up at the theater. He knows how tricky it is to navigate relationships and he knows she was put in a really tough spot that night. There's a couple of things that happen at the party and I won't go into all the clever plot twists, but by the end of the evening, Fran is fully aware that Sheldrake has been lying to her. He has no intention of leaving his wife. She's just one of the many women at the company who Jeff Sheldrake has played hide the sausage with, which of course pisses off Fran. She trusted him and he lied to her. She really believed he was in love with her, but he was using her the entire time. So it's fair to say she's pissed at Sheldrake. Also at the party that night, Baxter puts two and two together and figures out it's Fran that Sheldrake has been taking to his apartment. 
Baxter knows that Sheldrake is happily married and is just using Fran for sex, which upsets him because he knows Fran is not that kind of girl. If she's spending time with Sheldrake, it's because she thinks it's something more meaningful. Sheldrake is just treating her like a piece of garbage, and he's using Baxter's apartment to do it. So now Baxter is pissed at Sheldrake. Since Sheldrake had already reserved Baxter's apartment for that night, Baxter heads to a local bar. Now that he's aware of what's going on, he needs to drown his sorrows. He ends up meeting and flirting with a drunk married woman whose husband is conveniently out of the country. As Baxter's getting shit-faced, he's not aware of the fact that Fran is at his apartment confronting Sheldrake. She tells him she found out about the other women in the office from his secretary. And when cornered, Sheldrake does the best he can to calm her down and convince her that she's the only one for him. It's Christmas Eve, and he doesn't want to fight. But the ultimate slap in her face comes when she gives him a Christmas present. And in return, he does the old, oh, sorry, I didn't have time to get you anything. So here, go buy yourself something nice. And he hands her a hundred dollar bill. You see the look on her face and the way it suddenly changes. And you realize at the same time she does, she's fucking done with him. Now Baxter and Bar Lady are hammered and she agrees to go back to his place with him. He's sure it's got to be vacant by now, but he doesn't realize that when Sheldrake departed, Fran stayed behind to clean herself up a bit. She'd been crying, her makeup is smeared, she just wants a few minutes to freshen up before she's seen in public again. Once she's in the bathroom, she sees a prescription for sleeping pills on the shelf. And now she realizes she's in Baxter's apartment. She's overcome with emotion, pain, guilt, anger, and now humiliation. So she decides to take a big handful of those sleeping pills. Baxter comes home to find Fran passed out on his bed. He can't revive her, so he runs to get a doctor who lives next door. And we spend the next several minutes watching this desperate attempt to save her life. And it's a marathon of activity. Her stomach is pumped. And then in an attempt to keep her awake, the doctor must constantly slap her across the face. They force her to stand and try to walk around in circles in the apartment, forcing her to drink coffee. It's a horrible loop. They have to keep walking, slapping, drinking coffee. Walking, slapping, drinking coffee. The doctor agrees not to tell anyone, even though he's supposed to report suicide attempts to the police. But he tells Baxter that Fran needs to stay at the apartment for a couple of days until it's completely out of her system. They're worried in her drugged up state, she'll go tell somebody what she's done. Or even worse, the doctor tells him, they almost always try to do it again. I know this movie has taken a turn toward bummer town, but one good thing is that Baxter and Fran are now alone in his apartment for two days, which allows them time to get to know each other. They both open up about their past and realize that neither of them has really been lucky in love. They just can't seem to find the right person at the right time. Baxter contacts Sheldrake to tell him what's happening with Fran. But Sheldrake is spending Christmas with his family and can't make time to come to see her. He sends his best, but that's about all he's willing to do. Eventually, Fran's brother-in-law shows up at Baxter's apartment to take her home. After the holidays, everyone returns to the office, and almost immediately, Sheldrake fires his secretary for telling Fran about all of his office flings. 
but our girl is not gonna go quietly. She calls Sheldrake's wife and tells her everything her pig husband has been doing behind her back and for years. Mrs. Sheldrake does exactly what you'd hope she'd do. She asks for a divorce and tosses his lying, cheating ass out of their home. You would think Sheldrake would have an ounce of regret, but he thinks this is a good development. So what if his wife of 12 years is leaving him and taking his kids, his home, and a big chunk of his future earnings? He's excited because now he can live the life of a bachelor and pursue whatever woman he wants. For all he did to save Fran and care for her during her recovery, Baxter is rewarded with another promotion. Sheldrake is grateful for Baxter's discretion, because if this had blown up, Sheldrake's career and reputation would have been destroyed. The promotion comes with a new executive office, an expense account, lunch in the executive dining room, and a key to the executive washroom, which apparently is a really big perk because it comes up a lot in this movie. I don't get it, but whatever. Sheldrake is heaping the goods onto Baxter because he wants to ensure their perfect arrangement could stay intact. Now that he's going to be a swinging bachelor, Sheldrake's going to need that apartment a lot more often. Baxter has developed feelings for Fran. He boldly tells Mr. Sheldrake that he can no longer use his apartment to hook up with women, especially Fran. That is never happening again at Baxter's apartment. Sheldrake warns him to reconsider. In the nicest way possible, he's saying, listen, I own your ass. You will give me the fucking key. So Baxter ceremoniously hands him a key. But it's the one to the executive washroom. And with that, C.C. Baxter lets Jeff Sheldrake know he can take his job and his perks and shove them up his ass. When Fran finds out how Baxter stood up for her, she realizes that he's the man she needs to be with. She ditches Sheldrake at a New Year's Eve party and runs all the way to Baxter's apartment. As the movie ends, we assume they live happily ever after. Question one, does the apartment stand the test of time? The basic theme is still very prevalent in today's movies. It's not unusual to have three people in the same workplace involved in a love triangle. This is a time-tested formula, and there's always one person who seems to get left out in the cold, and that's usually the one person the audience members are most sympathetic toward. This is the type of movie that can be easily transferable to any period in time. By just changing the costumes, the set design, reworking small sections of the script, you could drop this movie into any decade and it would still be fun and engaging. I feel like it's incredibly accurate. Whenever I watch movies and TV shows set in the corporate workplaces during the 50s and 60s, this is the exact dynamic I'm used to seeing. Men held all of the positions of power and respect and often elected to sleep around with the women who were hired as secretaries, switchboard operators, and cafeteria workers who they believe were hired for their looks. And sadly, the women often considered themselves to be lucky if they were the ones chosen to be the boss's Tuesday night gal. I'm going to put on my human resources hat for a minute here and say that I would love for a movie like this to be remade today, knowing it would be scrutinized by today's legal standards regarding sexual harassment and quid pro quo in the workplace. I'm watching this movie and the minute Sheldrake fires his secretary, I'm thinking, well, there's a lawsuit waiting to happen. Maybe not in 1960, 
but in today's version, she and all the other women in the office who have engaged in sexual activities with men in power only to have their career paths stalled, sidetracked, or even ended once they are no longer playing along, they would collectively have some sort of legal recourse, if not legally, at least financially. And in my mind, that makes for a much better movie. Question two, is it Oscar worthy? Yes, I think this is just the type of movie that Oscar voters appreciate. A creative story, great performances, well-written script. To be honest, if it was just a prototypical romantic comedy involving a workplace love triangle, I'm not sure it wins the Oscar. I think the dramatic turn was necessary because it showed the complexity of extramarital affairs, how vulnerable some people can be, and if people's emotions are mishandled, it can turn very quickly into a case of self-harm. The other movies nominated that year were The Alamo, Elmer Gantry, Sons and Lovers, and The Sundowners. Both Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine were nominated for acting awards, but they did not win. In 1994, The Apartment was deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant by the United States Library of Congress and was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry. In 2006, Premier Magazine voted this film one of the 50 greatest comedies of all time. The Writers Guild of America has ranked the film's screenplay as the 15th greatest ever script. It also appears on five of the American Film Institute's top 100 lists. Question three, should you watch it? Yes, I highly recommend it. It's so well-written. And I love the clever way that each of them finds out what all the others are doing. I admit it's somewhat basic, like it's black and white. There's no big special effects, no explosions, no bad language, no nudity. Believe it or not, even though the entire movie is based on all of these sexual encounters, there's not a single sex scene. Shirley MacLaine and Jack Lemmon are both very young in this, and they were both bona fide hotties in their day. It's easy to watch because it's filled with young, successful, good-looking people who all want to sleep with each other. I'm so pleasantly surprised every time I watch one of these older movies for this project. I don't think there's been one so far that I haven't enjoyed. And this one's no exception. Please go watch it. I think you'll enjoy it. Okay, that's a wrap. This has been episode 53 of Cinema Sunday. I'll be back next week to discuss another Oscar-winning film please tell your friends about this podcast. If you feel so inclined, you can like, follow, subscribe, and even post a review. That helps get Cinema Sunday heard by a wider audience. If you have a comment, a correction, or just want to tell me that I have shit taste, you can email me at cinemasunday at yahoo.com. The music for Cinema Sunday is appropriately titled So Happy. It is by Scott Holmes Music. I got it off of freemusicarchives.org, and the work is licensed under Creative Commons by NC 4.0. Links are provided in the bio, and if you happen to visit the Free Music Archive, they do take donations, so please be generous. Thanks, and see you next week.